Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On a cool summer's evening in Craig, Alaska, a thin wisp of smoke would soon become the sign of a raging inferno aboard a local fishing vessel, which was home to a young family and four paid crew. By the time rescuers reached the scene, their efforts to extinguish the blaze were futile. Seven victims were found on the vessel after clearly having encountered someone sinister. On September 6, 1982, summer was fading into autumn in the remote town of Craig, Alaska. Craig has a population of just over 1,000 residents and is nestled on the western coast of Prince of Wales Island. Even now, it's a remote outpost of Alaska and can only be reached by plane or boat. Craig has a long native history as the home of the Tlingit people, whose name means people of the tides. It's a fitting insight into the way of life in Craig, where everything revolves around the ocean and the wildlife that the sea is home to. In the early 1900s, the area was settled by Craig Miller, who became the town's namesake. When he first visited the region, Craig cottoned onto what the native people had known for generations. The waters surrounding the area were rich with salmon and halibut. He established a fish saltery on nearby Fish Egg Island, as well as a cold storage plant and packing company. Over the coming years, the fishing industry in the area grew rapidly, and by the 1930s, commercial fishermen were hauling in record catches of pink salmon. Sadly, due to the lack of regulations and oversight, the rush on commercial fishing decimated the salmon population, and by the 1950s, the industry had totally collapsed. After that, logging became the primary means of employment for residents of the area. Vast expanses of the Tongass National Forest surround the town. Timber companies set up operations, and before long, sawmills and the sight of log-laden trucks became a common backdrop. But just like what happened with overfishing, the reliance on the timber industry came with its own set of challenges. The immense logging activities began to take a toll on the environment leading to concerns about deforestation, habitat loss, and long-term ecological impacts. By the late 20th century, two wars were being waged in defense of the natural environment surrounding Craig. Both the mountains and the seas needed protecting. 
1973, the Alaska legislature passed a bill creating a program which limited the number of fishermen who would be allowed to fish for salmon commercially in Alaska. They hoped that legislation would help to rehabilitate the salmon population while also providing a means to rebuild commercial fishing in the area. It was in that environment that Mark Coolthurst began his venture into salmon fishing. Mark wasn't like most salmon skippers in Alaska. He didn't come from a long line of fishermen, and he didn't earn his sea legs by growing up on a fishing boat surrounded by the ocean. He grew up in Blaine, Washington, to a father who worked in maintenance and a mother who was a homemaker. But even as a young man, Mark had a passion for boats and business. At the tender age of 18, he got his hands on a sunken 18-foot fishing vessel, which he restored to seaworthy condition. He used the boat to teach himself how to fish in Bellingham Bay. When he was ready for an upgrade, he used the money he earned to secure a loan from the bank to purchase a 36-foot boat he named the St. Mark. With a bigger boat and a better engine, he was able to rapidly increase his earnings, and in 1976, he bought his first sane boat, which was named the Kit. A sane boat is used in conjunction with a specific type of fishing net called a sane. This style of fishing involves using large nets that hang vertically in the water with weights at the bottom and floats at the top. The net essentially forms a wall which captures large numbers of fish simultaneously. Larger seine boats also carry a skiff which is a smaller motorized boat that goes out to drive the fish towards the net. When the fish are in position, the net is pulled tight which traps them inside. Mark took his new boat to the San Francisco Bay, where it proved to be an immediate success. In just one week of fishing, he caught $105,000 worth of herring, and his desire to make it big in fishing was one step closer. Mark was an entrepreneur, and he was driven by a single goal. He told his friends and family that he wanted to retire by the age of 50. In 1981, Mark made his biggest move yet when he purchased a new vessel, which he named the Investor. The Investor was a new style of seine boat. It was faster, more efficient, and it could stay out at sea for much longer than the smaller and less advanced boats of his competitors. It was also much more expensive. At $750,000, which is more than $2 million in today's money, it was one of the most advanced and costly boats fishing out of Craig in the 1980s. When it comes to salmon fishing, the advantages of a faster boat can't be underestimated. When the Alaska Department of Fish and Game opens the commercial salmon fishing season, the faster boats get to the fish far sooner than their competitors, which means they can scoop up their catch before the others have even arrived. Mark's investment was paying off and he was climbing the ranks of the fishing elite. He was in his early 20s and easily outrunning fishermen who had been in the game their whole lives. Naturally, not everyone was happy about his success especially those who were local to the area who tended to look unkindly to outsiders. Despite Mark being a relative newcomer, everyone knew his name especially after he was featured in the June 1982 Pacific Fishing magazine where he was labeled as one of the industry's up-and-coming big players. On top of his commercial success, Mark also had a great home life. He was married to his high school sweetheart Irene and the couple had two children, Kimberly and John. Irene was endlessly supportive of Mark's fishing ventures, and it wasn't just about the money. She too loved the high seas, and she was an intelligent co-captain and business partner for her husband. There had been a number of occasions where Irene's quick thinking had helped avert a disaster on board. 
Mark and Irene were a team in every sense of the word. Irene and the children lived aboard the investor with Mark. His goal was to retire before 50, but they knew that life on board a fishing vessel wasn't ideal for the kids. So the plan was to live and work on the boat together until the children needed to start school. When the time came, Irene would move into a home with them while Mark fished during the season and returned home during the off-season. The plan would give them the best of both worlds. Stability for the children and a healthy income for their future. By 1982, the time had come for Irene to set sail towards the next chapter of the family's journey. Kimberly had just turned five and it was time to settle into life on the land. But first, they had to get through one more season of salmon fishing. That year, the green light for commercial fishing was given on July 4th, Independence Day. The first half of the season got off to an unexpectedly slow start. Logbooks from the investor show that they fished for two days then had four days off, followed by another two days of fishing and four days off. It seemed to be a stop-start process, and by the end of the month, they had caught just 5,417 fish. But in August, everything changed. For 31 days, the crew fished almost entirely non-stop. By the end of the month, they were on their way back to Craig with nearly 200,000 fish on board. It was a record catch, but Mark's crew were exhausted. Fishing on a seine boat at the height of the season leaves very few hours for rest. A normal day would entail 12 hours of fishing, which is physically demanding work. When the crew weren't manning the nets or processing the catch, they would be taking two-hour shifts watching the wheel while the other half of the team worked their shifts. There were very few opportunities for uninterrupted sleep and even less time allocated for eating. Irene was a great cook and she kept the oven on almost continuously, but meals were taken on the move with most of the crew only having 20 minutes of rest per shift while the nets were out. The rest of the time they were either setting up the net or hauling it in. When it came to nighttime, the nets weren't usually in until well after 9 p.m. and the next day they would be set. When it came to nighttime, the nets weren't usually in until well after 9 p.m. and the next day they would be set to start again in the early hours of the morning. Needless to say, when the crew returned to Craig early in September, they were looking forward to a well-earned rest. When they arrived in the harbor in Craig, they were joined by more than 150 fishing vessels who were lining up to unload their catch and accept their payments. At that time of the year, the population in Craig can swell to three or four times its usual size. So Mark moored the investor between two other fishing boats, the Decade and the Defiant. That meant that anyone who wanted to get off the boat and onto the dock would need to walk across the decks of two other boats. After cleaning the boat up and preparing the catch to be removed from the holding tanks, Mark told his crew they had earned a night off. He was also looking forward to winding down after an intense month of captaining. It was September 5th, which also happened to be Mark's 28th birthday. He had decided to make the day extra special, seeing as it was the last season with his family on board. Irene and the children were due to return to Washington the very next day in time for the start of the school year. The family got dressed in their best outfits, walked across the decks of the neighboring boats, and headed into town for dinner at Craig's finest restaurant, Ruth Ann's. The Colthursts made the most of their last night together. By 10 p.m., they were back on board the Investor and ready to go to bed. They never could have imagined that it would be their last night. Ever. 
The next morning at around 6.30 a.m., one of the crew on board the Decade noticed that the investor was drifting away from between the two boats it had been tied up to. He stepped out onto the deck of his vessel and was relieved to see someone inside the wheelhouse controlling the boat. He waved out to the person and received a friendly wave in return. He watched while the investor slipped silently away and disappeared into the morning fog. On the morning of September 6, 1982, the fog that had settled overnight began to lift. Those standing at the dock and Craig could just make out the shape of the investor, which was now anchored a mile away by Fish Egg Island. The location itself wasn't so unusual, but it was odd that one of the most successful fishing boats in the area hadn't left for the last day of the season. As the other boats headed out, the investor remained eerily still. There was no activity on the deck and none of the crew had visited the township for supplies. As the fog settled that night, a few of the local captains commented to each other that something felt amiss. The investor's reputation was built not just on its state-of-the-art design, but also on the relentless drive of its skipper. Something seemed out of place, but no one could quite put their finger on what it was. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It took until late in the afternoon of the next day for the fog to lift from the water surrounding Craig. That's when the crew aboard the fishing vessel, the casino, noticed something. It was 4.20 p.m. when they saw smoke billowing from the hull of the investor. It was a thin and gray plume at first, but as they watched, the smoke turned thick and black. Within minutes, the casino had pulled its anchor and was racing towards the burning boat, hoping that the crew had managed to jump overboard before the fire took hold. On their way, they fired off a mayday call over the radio to alert passing ships and the Coast Guard about the blaze. As they headed towards the fire, they noticed a small boat heading back in the opposite direction, away from the investor and towards the dock. It was the skiff from the investor. They flagged the vessel down, and the young guy on board told them he was going for help. Meanwhile, fishermen and locals at the dock and Craig had seen the smoke, and they were jumping into any motorized vessel they could get their hands on. Everyone seemed to be rushing towards the fire, hoping against hope that everyone on board was safe. By the time the first boats arrived at the investor, the entire living quarters of the boat were fully engulfed. Flames licked through every window and door, and the wheelhouse was completely consumed by acrid smoke and tongues of fire. The skipper of the casino brought his vessel to within 50 feet, but couldn't get any closer for fear of the flames jumping to his ship. He stored his propane tanks on the stern, and one spark could ignite the gas, taking his ship down with the investor. The casino didn't have any firefighting equipment on board, so they were restricted to circling a safe distance from the blaze and scouring the waters for survivors. Two hours after the Coast Guard had been notified of the fire, Alaska state troopers and local police arrived at the scene. The state troopers had spent the better part of the previous hour trying to source firefighting equipment to extinguish the flames, but they'd been unable to find anything in Craig except for one little tugboat with a single pump and hose aboard. The tug backed as close to the rear of the investor as possible and managed to extinguish the fire on the nets. 
It then came alongside the burning vessel and attempted to put out the fire in the cabin area, but by then, the roof of the cabin had collapsed and the fire was growing more intense by the minute. Ultimately, the little tug had to abandon its attempt and the investor was left to burn until there was no fuel left to feed the fire. The only consolation was that a few minutes earlier, a fellow fisherman had released the ship's anchor and dragged the vessel aground so that it wasn't able to sink. It was a last-ditch attempt to save anyone on board, but their efforts to rescue survivors were in vain. No one would walk away from the inferno except for the person who had started it. It was immediately clear to State Trooper Bob Anderson that the fire on board the investor was no accident. The intensity and spread of the fire indicated the use of an accelerant, which meant only one thing. The fire had been deliberately set. When he reported the fire to his superiors in Ketchikan, he requested they send an arson investigator to take a closer look. In the meantime, he was responsible for determining who was on board when the ship went up in flames. No one who had come to assist with the fire had reported finding anyone in the water and there was little chance that anyone had survived, but he needed to know exactly how many victims he was dealing with. At around 7.30pm, the fire was finally extinguished when Coast Guard helicopters delivered firefighting pumps which were installed onto two local tugboats. By 8pm, Trooper Anderson determined that the burnt-out hull of the investor had cooled enough for him to go aboard and look for bodies. By then, the boat was resting on the bottom of the bay and it had listed all the way over to one side. As soon as Anderson climbed onto the deck of the boat, he found the unidentifiable remains of a human. When one of the volunteers who had joined him on board lifted a smoldering piece of fiberglass, they discovered two more bodies. This time, the debris had protected the faces of the victims and Anderson was able to identify them as Mark and Irene. On the port side of the boat, inside the skipper's stateroom, the trooper found the tiny and unidentifiable remains of a child. By the time Anderson called off the search at around midnight, he had discovered four sets of remains. Irene, Mark, and one of their children, as well as one of the crew. What was left of the four victims was carefully placed into body bags and removed from the ship. When Trooper Anderson had finished overseeing the transport of the bodies into secure storage in Craig, he began to make his way towards home. That's when a local police officer approached him to say he had a witness who had seen a man on a skiff heading away from the fire. When the authorities talked to the man, he told them he had watched the skiff operator tie up the boat at the dock in Craig. The witness described the man as around 21 years old, wearing a baseball cap over blonde or light brown hair. The hat had an emblem like Alaska Pipeline or Fish and Game on it, and he was also wearing glasses. After the interview, Anderson went down to the dock and found the skiff exactly where the witness said it would be. He didn't know it then, but the skiff belonged to the investor, and it was the exact same one the crew on board the casino had seen hours earlier, rushing away from the fire. The next morning, Trooper Anderson was back on board the investor to search through the rest of the boat for more victims. There were four crew known to be on board the investor at the time it burned, as well as the four members of the Colthurst family. The hired crew included 17-year-old Chris Heyman, 19-year-old Dean Moon, 19-year-old Jerome Keown, and Mark's cousin, 19-year-old Michael Stewart. On the second day of searching, three further bodies were discovered, but that time the remains came in the form of blackened bone shards. Those were only identified as three separate people during the forensic aspect of the investigation, which involved sifting two tons of soggy ashes through fine mesh screens. 
That led to the discovery of a single tooth and ten pounds of bone fragments. The fire had been so intense that it had destroyed everything else. By the end of the scene examination, seven separate sets of remains had been found on the boat. The confirmed victims of the fire were Mark, Irene, Jerome, and five-year-old Kimberly. None of the bone fragments belong to four-year-old Johnny, and none of his remains have ever been found. It's not known if the final three sets of remains belong to Chris and Dean, though the tooth has been tentatively identified as belonging to Dean. The fact that the victims remain unidentified more than 40 years after the crime is far from the most disturbing aspect of the case. The autopsies of the intact bodies revealed a shocking truth. The victims hadn't burned to death. They had all been shot in the head with a 22 caliber weapon. None of them had carbon dioxide in their lungs, which meant they were already dead before the fire took hold. And tragically, Irene's autopsy indicated she was pregnant at the time of the murder. It was now certain that the fire had been set as a way to conceal that the victims had been murdered. With the knowledge that they were dealing with a mass murder, the investigators determined that the anchor point off Fish Egg Island had been chosen by the killer because the bay was deep enough to sink a large boat. As well as the three additional sets of remains, the investigation of the boat revealed another key piece of evidence. Valves which are used to control the flow of water in and out of the boat for the fish tank had all been left open, which was incredibly unusual. Mostly because allowing water to flow uninhibited into a floating vessel has an obvious effect, most commonly sinking. Investigators spent the next week speaking to various crews and residents who had witnessed the catastrophe both up close and from afar. There were diners from local restaurants who spoke of a scruffy guy they didn't recognize who had been hanging around town and was clearly up to no good. Then there were reports of the skiff operator seen by the crew on the casino as well as the witness from the township. After piecing together evidence from the ship as well as the varying eyewitness statements, the investigators had what they believe is a likely timeline of events that night. Something sinister had happened on board the Investor on the night of September 5th, after Mark and Irene returned from their celebratory dinner. Whatever went down ended up with the crew being shot to death either that night or in the early hours of the next morning. The killer then attempted to slip out of the harbor and Craig unnoticed, which is why the engines were never fired up when the crew member aboard the Decade had seen the investor leaving. The killer had taken the boat to Fish Egg Island because the water was much deeper there. They splashed gasoline around the deck, opened the valves, lowered the getaway skiff into the water, and set the boat on fire hoping that water would rush in and sink the boat at the same time as fire destroyed evidence of what they had done. Whoever was responsible had then used the skiff to get away from the scene and had told anyone who saw him that he was going for help. All of that sounds like a well-founded investigation, except 40 years later, the person responsible remains unidentified. One of the key problems with this case is the differing eyewitness descriptions of the runaway killer. The crew member from the decade described the person operating the investor on the night it slipped away from Craig as stocky with light brown hair, wearing a red and black plaid jacket. The crew of the casino described the man on the skiff as young, slight, wearing a baseball cap and later described him as having a pockmarked face. Witnesses from Craig described the person as scruffy and wearing old clothes. A person manning the local gas station told police that a mysterious person had purchased gas the day before the fire. 
Some said he looked like someone they knew, while others said he was a stranger. The descriptions were so vague that they could have matched many of the young guys working on fishing boats that season. All of that meant that the composites the FBI put together were pretty varied and no one was really sure who they should be looking out for. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Beyond who was responsible, investigators also needed to determine why the crew of the investor had been targeted. While Mark was known as a go-getter and an innovator, he also had a reputation as a bit of a hothead with a big ego to match. When Mark was on board the investor, he had a strict no-alcohol-and-no-drugs policy, but when he came ashore, he liked to let loose. He was young and upcoming, which already rubbed old-timers the wrong way, and when he had a few drinks, his big mouth would get him into trouble with the regulars. Not consuming alcohol and drugs weren't the only rules crew on board the investor had to abide by. Mark was known as a strict captain who pushed his crew hard and expected absolute obedience. If a crew member stepped out of line even once, Mark would fire them without notice and drop them off at the next port. That meant Mark had a reputation amongst the local crewmen as a bit of an asshole. Money was quickly ruled out as a motive. The investor was fully laden with salmon worth at least $30,000, but Mark hadn't been paid yet. And the fish was worth nothing if the boat sank to the bottom of the harbor. Mark also wasn't one to keep his loot on board the ship. When he got paid, he deposited the check straight into the bank rather than cashing it out like many of his fellow captains were prone to do. The news of the fire and the death shocked the small town of Craig, but the effects of the crime were felt much wider. When the FBI became involved in the investigation, they announced a $15,000 reward for anyone with information about the fire. By then, investigators assumed that whoever had killed Mark and the crew of the investor was likely known to him either as an ex-crew member or fellow fisherman. The fact that the boat had been moved from Craig to Fish Egg Island indicated that the killer had at least a moderate knowledge of how to operate a boat and some familiarity with the region. They theorized that the killer had left Craig the day after the massacre, most likely on another fishing vessel. Despite eyewitness accounts and the evidence taken from the boat, the investigation into the murder seemed to stall almost as soon as the flames went out. Over the coming months, more than 100 people were interviewed, ash was sifted and re-sifted, and yet there were no arrests or even any solid suspects. Then, two years after the fire, investigators made a surprise announcement. They had a new witness and a new suspect. John Peel was arrested on September 10, 1984, after investigators declared they believed he had the means, motive, and opportunity to carry out the murders. John had once dated Mark's sister in an on-again, off-again relationship that lasted for a number of years. She introduced John to Mark, and he was offered a position as a crewman on the boat Mark had previously owned, the Kit. After Mark purchased the investor, John gave up fishing for a while and he settled in Bellingham, Washington, where he took up work as a shipbuilder. By the time he was arrested for the murders, he was married with children of his own. John had been suspected since the outset based on the fact that he was in Craig at the time of the incident after he decided to do another season as a crewman on a fishing boat. 
The money was good, and one season of fishing could provide for nearly six months of living costs. With a wife and child at home, it was too good an opportunity to pass up. John had the opportunity to carry out the murders, and investigators believed he also had a strong motive. They alleged that Mark had fired John from the kit for drinking and using drugs while crewing for him. That damaged John's reputation amongst other captains, which limited his opportunities for jobs on higher-paying vessels. Outside of the circumstantial evidence, there was one other indicator that linked John to the murders. He had taken a number of polygraph tests since the time of the fire, and he had failed every single one. However, the case against John stalled almost as soon as it started. During a preliminary hearing, the judge criticized the prosecution for failing to hand over evidence that could have indicated John's innocence. That piece of evidence was based on the eyewitness testimony of the person manning the gas station in Craig who had picked John Peel's face out of a photo lineup. See, the arson investigators identified that white gas had been used as the accelerant for the fire. Except the gas station in Craig didn't sell white gas. So if John had been the person to buy gas the day before the fire, it didn't tie him to the fire because that wasn't the accelerant that was used to ignite it. As a result of the missing piece of evidence, the judge dismissed all of the charges against John without prejudice. That meant that the prosecution could still bring charges against John at another time, which they did later that same year. In January of 1985, John's murder trial got underway after a full month of jury selection. It then took another five months for both sides to present their evidence. The prosecution laid out all of their eyewitnesses, John's links to Mark, and the fact that he had no solid alibi for the night of the fires. But the defense took the approach that John shouldn't even be on trial in the first place. Yes, he had been in Craig, and yes, he knew John, but aside from that, there was very little evidence tying him to the scene. There was no forensic evidence, and the eyewitness descriptions varied so widely that they could have been referring to anyone in Craig that day. Then there was the fact that a crewman from the ship John was working on at the time had provided him with an alibi for the night of the murders. It wasn't John's fault that the prosecution didn't believe their statements. The defense also called into question the entire investigation which appeared to have focused on John from the start. They presented evidence that when the state trooper had shown eyewitnesses a photo lineup of 30 potential suspects, he had included eight photos of John. Then there was the fact that the trooper hadn't fingerprinted the skiff found at the dock in Craig, or in fact any of the evidence collected from the investor itself. Ultimately, the opposing evidence meant that the jury were unable to reach a unanimous decision. After six days of deliberation, they were deadlocked. Seven jurors believed John wasn't guilty and five believed he was, so the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. The prosecution wasn't about to give up, though, even though it was the longest and most expensive trial in Alaskan history. In 1986, the trial had cost the state $2 million U.S. million, which would be more than $45 million today. Three years later, they brought a second trial which lasted another three months. The second jury also couldn't reach a unanimous decision, but ultimately they were able to acquit John of all the charges. In 1987, John sued the state of Alaska for wrongful prosecution. It turns out that the evidence in the case that the prosecution had handed over included a seven-page memo which had been sent between the investigators early on in the case. 
In the memo, the detective admitted that the case against John was purely circumstantial and the crime would not be solved or successfully pursued without a confession. All of the investigators who have come and gone on this case have felt that the person or persons responsible for the killings were close, on a personal basis, to a portion of the investor crew. They claimed that they could find no one else but John Peel who knew the investor crew and was in Craig at the time of the killings. The memo said, quote, Suffice it to say that a confession with collaborating facts is imperative to conclude this case. Without it, there is no case. Therefore, everything should be directed to that end. The memo also included two lists. One was all the reasons to indicate that John was involved, and one which indicated that he wasn't. The list in favor of John being the killer had 17 points. They ranged from John appearing to be most like the person seen operating the skiff and that he is the, quote, only person on board the Libby 8 who showed no interest in going to watch the investor burn. The list indicating that John was not involved included seven points like, he indicates he was in bed at 8 p.m. because he was stoned and that he had, quote, no obvious motive for the deed. The memo made it clear that investigators were told to pursue John as the only suspect and not to stop until they had a confession from him. That confession never came and yet they prosecuted him anyway. One of the officers involved in the initial investigation has since stated, quote, They got the right guy. Just because someone is acquitted doesn't mean they're innocent. Just means there's not enough evidence to show guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Another officer involved stated that many of his original questions about the case remain unanswered. He said, quote, Every time I pursue something, I keep coming up short. There's always something that doesn't fit. One thing that is stuck in my craw is why the murderer didn't burn the boat right away, or at night when there was darkness to cover his escape. There must have been some compelling reason that caused him to do it in broad daylight. John ended up settling his wrongful prosecution suit for $900,000. By then, he had spent more than 15 years defending himself against mass murder charges. In the years since the settlement, John has only commented on the case once. In 2017, on the 35th anniversary of the murders, he stated, quote, Somebody out there knows what happened, but I'm not going to waste any more of my life on it. No further suspects have ever been identified and the case is still unsolved. It remains the biggest mass murder in Alaskan history. There's no doubt someone sinister was aboard the investor that night in 1982, but their identity remains unknown. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. 
Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.